Hello, hello everyone, and uh, welcome to uh, what we're calling the first virtual national roadshow. Uh, we've been up and down the country with the real thing, but COVID has obviously changed things a lot. So we're we're trying something uh, something uh, a wee bit new tonight. Uh, a big thank you to all our readers and subscribers who are joining us, um, or who'll be watching back over the next couple of days. Uh, I think we're keen to start doing a, a few more of these, maybe every every month, every couple of months. Give our readers the chance to to ask some of our columnists uh, and and, and uh, some questions. Uh, I'm Callum Baird. I'm the editor of the National. In case you don't know, um, I'm joined by three of our top columnists today. Uh, I'll introduce them one by one. David Pratt, uh, our kind of foreign editor who writes a column for the Daily Paper, a big piece for the Sunday and has actually got a, an extra big piece for the Sunday this week as well. Um, uh, if you follow his Twitter feed, it looks like he's living in the set of a, a, a movie at the moment with all the kind of Hollywood blockbusters <laughs> that are being filmed in Glasgow. How are you doing, David? Very well. Good evening, everyone. And uh, Leslie Riddick, uh, who uh, needs no introduction, but I'll give her one anyway. A broadcaster, national columnist, indie campaigner of the year, still. Yes, yeah, there's another few months to go before we uh, appoint the next one. <laughs> Expert on all things Nordic. How are you doing, Leslie? Yeah, well, I, I should have had a little Nordic, yeah, bra <laughs> ready, but yeah, there's a word for that works for all of us. <laughs> And uh, finally, Kevin McKenna, a national columnist, uh, columnist for other papers, a man not afraid to speak his mind and one of the only columnists whose articles we sometimes need to tone down a bit before publication. Um, uh, you, you, never told, you never told me that. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you don't read the the, the final version. That <laughs> to print. Uh, no, you, you you and Michael Fry uh, are the two that, that, oh, that uh, really keep an eye on. Um, <laughs> so lots of uh, lots of questions have already come in from readers. So we're just going to keep it. Um, we're just going to try and get through as many of them as possible. Lots of similar questions about independence, about Boris Johnson, about the movement, what's happening there. So we'll try and get through as many as possible. But um, if you're watching uh, at home live now and you want to put some questions in the chat or make some comments, please get involved and we'll try and uh, we'll try and answer them if we can, if we have time. Probably keep going for about an hour. Um, we'll see how it goes. I'd probably try and finish up about half eight, depending on how we get through everything. Uh, the only other thing to say is that there is going to be a subscription offer probably going along the screen at some point. Um, I'm not going to read it out myself, but there's a code. Uh, in fact, there it's there. You can see it now. Uh, so please consider taking out a subscription to Scotland's only pro-independence newspaper. Still the only one. Uh, and every reader and subscriber that we get allows us to to do what we do and, and, and commission great writers like these and, and hopefully put on events like this going on in the future. So let's get started then. Boris Johnson is in Scotland. Uh, he doesn't have any time to, to see Nicola Sturgeon. I've heard through the grapevine that he might be meeting some newspaper editors. I wasn't invited, obviously. Um, but uh, she says that it's strange that he has uh, rejected her request to meet. What does this mean? Does it show Boris's contempt for Scotland? Uh, and what will the AFM be thinking privately about this rejection. Uh, should we start with you, Kevin? Yeah, it's it's a strange one. I mean, in my naivety, I I somehow thought that when um, Nicola Sturgeon issued the invitation, that it was one of those which had already been agreed upon by civil servants. Um, and may, maybe that's quite endearing that actually people in these high power positions just kind of issue invitations the same as the rest of us do. And and again, maybe I'm naive here. I just assumed that that uh, Boris Johnson would have accepted it, you know, because that's what leaders do when you get an invite to speak, especially with issues surrounding you know, with all four nations still recovering from coronavirus. Um, but then then I watched I watched uh, Boris Johnson um, Johnson being interviewed in the BBC not long before um, you know about an hour ago, and it was clearly just. <laughs> You know, can I use this word? It was clearly just didn't give a toss. You know, it was like that's fine. Yeah, that's fine. The, the interviewer just kept asking him, "So why, you know, why couldn't you meet Nicola Sturgeon? Because after all, you've made you've made time to, you know, to fit this interview in. Um, you're going to be meeting the the leader of the opposition, and he and he kept talking about COP twenty six. Um, you know that this was the prevailing reason he had to be here, and, and that it was going. He was conveying the, the the impression that this was occupying so much of his time that he just couldn't possibly fit in half an hour or so with the first minister. But Boris Johnson, by his own admission, doesn't really 
I'm not saying he wouldn't give a toss about COP26, but the way he was talking about it, it was like, oh, is it COP25? Is it COP27? It was that COP something. And, and then he was pointing over behind him in, in the Glasgow um, landscape. You know, yeah, it's over there, it's over there. <laughs> and then I realised that he, he, he doesn't give, he just doesn't really take Scotland that seriously. And he doesn't take the Scottish government or, or the need to, to um, talk to the Scottish government all that seriously. And, and I think it's an opportunity for Nicola Sturgeon um, and the Scottish government in future when, when Boris Johnson, the next time he, he says, you know, I care about the four uh, countries of the United Kingdom, it means an awful lot to me. Well, it clearly doesn't. Yeah, we, we, we sent some people out to, uh, we sent a journalist out today to, to the streets of Glasgow to ask them what they would say to Boris Johnson. Uh, and th- that's definitely the kind of language that, that can't be repeated. But we've started it out in tomorrow's paper and it's all very, very entertaining. Um, what do you think about Boris's trip to Scotland, Leslie? It strikes me as a little bit, a little bit more low key than the last one, possibly. But, um, what, what have you made of things so far? Well, just listening to Kevin as well, it strikes me that, you know, there's that thing that if you're told don't think of a pink elephant, the first thing that comes into your mind is a pink elephant. So, you know, Boris in not going to Butte House is trying to get you to not think about Butte House. Don't think about the humiliation. Don't think about him skedaddling out the back door. Don't think that there was, you know, a spontaneous crowd there basically throw you know chucking verbal pelters at him don't think about anything that happened last time because he's not repeating it but in not repeating it he's making you think mm. precisely about what happened last time and focusing your mind precisely into the obvious reason that he's never going to go to Butte House again which is that he looked like a total arse and you know the the, the BBC I noticed BBC Scotland uh, I mean Kevin was lit here was watching a and in that interview with Boris later. But um, one of their political correspondents earlier <clears throat> in trying to explain why Boris wouldn't really be wanting to go and visit Nicola was sort of trying to kind of allude to what happened last time without doing the pink elephant um, and said uh, basically that Boris doesn't want to appear like a colonial governor. And you sort of think, <laughs> just, just breathe that further in, pal. Yeah. You know, just take that right into yourself. What are we saying here? Because the other thing is that, you know, Boris crossing the border is such a blooming event that it is like, well, where would you go? But go and speak to essentially, you know, your opposite number. They don't. It's like if I went up to Wick, I'd be on a three line whip to visit my aunt. I love her. I don't mind seeing her at all. It's a good it's a highlight of a visit. But why would you go all that way and not go there? So it's kind of like this. And I guess in the end, the way a lot of Scots will look at it, actually, although we can all have fun with the personality aspect of it and the fact that Boris doesn't want his backside handed to him again by Nicola and then well lampooned by Janie Godley. I mean, God almighty, would that not make your summer? It's it's a thing about position, not personality. Because the point is the position of First Minister of Scotland is meant to mean something. There's mm. meant to be four nation stuff going on. There's meant to be a need to, to, to coordinate. You know, in any sort of normal governance systems that were worth the candle, you would actually be meeting very frequently. So, you know, I think what this really brings home is that the position of First Minister in a devolution that Boris clearly thinks is a disaster is simply not worth respecting. And that's the sort of snub. It's the snub to the position that means something to us in Scotland. It means a lot. Yes, absolutely. And if it, and if it, well, it's not going to be, but if it was a, if it was a Tory first minister, you're almost certain that the, the prime minister would visit. But you, send, you get the sense almost that the, the torn between um, I say wanting to show respect to Scotland, but I, I mean that only in the sense of they don't actually want to, but they want to be seen to be doing that, um, and uh, and not wanting to 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 present Boris as an equal to Sturgeon because that's that's also bad for them. They think in, in independence terms. What have you made of it, David? Well, I, mean, I think the optics are everything, to be honest, uh, as, as Leslie and Kevin say. And I, I think from um, Johnson's perspective here, 
it's he's kind of damned if he does and he's damned if he doesn't. Let's let's be honest about it. If you, if you, one of his researchers or advisors and suggesting that oh, if you go after the the Butte House backslap the last time, that moment there, you know, it could be and most likely would be acutely embarrassing for him. Any kind of meeting like that, the protests, um, people expressing their dislike for his visit or whatever. So to do that, he's pretty much damned. By not meeting Sturgeon, he's pretty much damned. Either way, from a tactical perspective, I think that it works in Scotland's favour, you know, because it once again highlights the level of disconnect that I think that, you know, that the Tory government uh, and Johnson has with Scotland. So all in all, when you consider everything, I think we probably come out from a did I say it from a publicity or from a propagandist point of view, um, you know, in a favourable in a favourable light. Yeah, I, th- I think that the, there's a sense that they're very aware that that Boris is a big driver of support for independence. Um, I, I want to kind of leave. Boris I, mean, you know, the, I mean, I mean, the bottom line is, if he blinks in the wrong key here, he's crucified. Mm. They know that it must be very, very difficult to harness someone like that and steer them through this kind of Scottish minefield, of which, of course, it's a minefield of his own in great part making. You know, he has created the landscape of contempt that there is here for him in that way. But so kind of hell mend them in that respect. They've got a bit of a dilemma on their hands when uh, when he pays a visit north. But the other thing that's quite amusing um, is that the British press, I mean, you know, London press are fairly onto it. I mean, we were talking earlier. I had two calls from producers from TV <coughs> News to only talk about 30 seconds to kind of get that one resolved. And Sky News, actually, um, who wanted to talk about the Boris visit. So this will probably get us on to other subjects. But I mean, clearly, London is just it's just itching for another bus stop. You know, it's almost like in a way they want the excitement. They want the adrenaline back. You know, they've had Brexit. They've had big storms. They're fully expecting the next big Ramy, the big blooming mother of a lot of them, to be Scottish independence. And they're kind of about, you know, many of them are about as impatient as, as we are. Yeah, it's been a quiet couple of months on that front, hasn't it? Probably since the election. <laughs> uh, just a bit, yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, are you are you wanting to waft onto that or have I prematurely well, I, connected you know, us? I, I think that's probably going to dominate the rest of, of, of what we are here. I, I mean, I'll take it back to a, a, a reader's question then and we can start off from there and then and then move on. So, uh, so Derek, I mean, broadly, there's, there's kind of two areas in which we've got tons and tons of questions of this. And they, they broadly fit into two areas. One concerns support for independence kind of more widely, what's happening and it sort of involves like how do we get there? What are the next step strategy? And then the second bit is uh, the the movement and how that's fractured a little bit with Alba with with infighting and all those kind of things. So I want to try and broadly you know, keep those two things separate if possible. So even just just and, and I know they, they can't really be, but we'll, we'll try. Uh, so Derek Atfield, uh, first of all, asks, uh, he, he wants to ask. Um, so. And this is actually something that we were talking about today in, in the newsroom um, uh, about the, we at the National as a newspaper very, very much tap into the momentum of what's happening in the political sphere and particularly in the independence movement. And when there's loads happening, when there's loads of stories where everybody's talking about it, it's it's all going well. And then when it's not, we find it a lot more difficult to do what we're doing and generate the stories and generate the interest in, in people coming to the site. So, um it, there was a period towards the end of last year, uh, probably the start of this year as well, where polling for independence was looking absolutely brilliantly. And it was it was it was excellent. Every poll was, you know, 58, 56. I remember I did designed a front page where I had Boris's uh head in the middle. It might have been his last visit to Scotland actually, and it said Boris doesn't think the public want independence. Has he seen the last 20 polls? And there was basically just 20 numbers in the air around them. And it was 56, 55, 54, whatever, all over 50. Uh, but, it, but it's dipped a little bit, according to, to pollsters in the last couple of months. And uh, Derek asks, what do we need to do? Well, first of all, why? What has caused this apparent dip in support for independence, if we believe it's the case? And what do we need to do to get it back to this level and beyond, which is obviously quite a big question. But I'm going to go back to you, Leslie, on that one, if that's okay. Well, I mean, you know, fac ends for starters, because it is, it's a, it's, you know, I don't know that any of us have got a kind of foolproof answer to that. Um, 
I mean, I think during the during the COVID, obviously during the COVID epidemic, we had two governments side by side, constant daily comparisons, and just just such a comparison between leaders, leadership styles, and essentially political backdrops. I mean, we had, as, as Kevin said earlier, you have Boris who, who you know, I, I just, you can't imagine him in a supermarket trying to bark out an order, you know, his order. He just waffles, um, you know, the way he approaches everything sounds like a man who has no control and no interest, actually. No interest in detail, no grasp of it. That's beneath them. That's not what leaders do. Leaders just sit and have peeled grapes chucked to them by you know, sundry flunkies and figure out how to kind of do crony contracts. Right. Every time there was a news of one of those contracts, yet another just unbelievable um, just departure from any standards of governance. I think that Scots, who are a tediously law abiding bunch, actually, um, were just shocked to the core, actually, that this could pass for governance. So there was just that daily thing going on. And then there's Nicola, God lover, pitching up every day, looking together on it, explaining things properly, anticipating how people won't understand something and saying, yeah, you might think this, but here's how it works, really. Janie Godley pump pops up later, turning it into, you know, a couple of syllable instructions in case you didn't get it the first time. And I mean, I can remember at one point being out coming down on my bike having a bit of a kind of traffic jam in the road here. There was an oil delivery. There was a car behind it. There's a car behind it. They were all wondering how long the guy was going to take. I wheeled past him on the bike. All the cars were listening to Nicola's, uh, you know, her COVID briefing. Um, the guy delivering it in the lorry was listening to it. The woman in the house was listening to it. It was just like, you know, you, you were basically hearing what a government can be like. Our government driven by Scots, speaking like us, who didn't screw it all up any more than anybody else in this four-nation setup did. So I think that is a, was a huge boost to confidence. Um, and, and, and it was happening in the absence of anybody actually really discussing independence. Now, nobody was asking questions, difficult questions at that point, particularly about borders, currency, yada, yada, because actually nobody was discussing it. So I think as soon as you get out of that context where you're not seeing that same kind of compare and contrast, and you are now in a stage, we're out of that stage. We're in the stage which we should be moving towards applying for a Section 30 order and having a strategy for an independence referendum essentially next year. And, uh, you know, that now has to happen because in the absence of those preparations and in the absence of answers, people can only conclude that the Scottish government is essentially bottling the proposition. Um, that's the stage we're at. So you have to put up or people will basically feel that the um, argument is not worth defending. And I know Mike Russell's been appointed. He's uh, he's going to apparently by September come up with answers to all the thorny questions. Um, you know, it would be a triumph of hope over experience to think that the SNP conference, now conveniently online again, uh, will be a particularly robust one. Um, but it has to deal with this. And yet, I don't know if the SNP membership are able, technically, or willing to push if they don't get anything resembling a clear, proper strategy for independence. So you can't sit, you can't be half pregnant anymore. No. You know, where, where it's too I, I late. Mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I think we're hitting on the on the theme of tonight's, you know, the whole of tonight's topic, you know, what now for independence? And that is what Leslie is, is, is clearly sort of alluding to there. I mean, I'd like to kind of start off on a positive note and say, you know, I think the desire and the passion for it is is still immensely strong. I don't think it's been as weakened as much as people think. Having said that, there's no question that it's gone off the boil. There's no question about that at all, um, as the polls reflect. And I, and I think there's there's three reasons for that. And let me just take the three reasons, uh, what they are, in my opinion. The first is an obvious one, and I'm not using this as an excuse. I'll come back to that in a moment. But clearly, we're in the middle of a global pandemic. So people's, you know, sort of distractions um, are elsewhere. The focus 
has been elsewhere. I think, um, secondly, the, most importantly, you know, there has been a failure by our elected representatives. Let's be frankly here, let's be frank here, in terms of taking the fight to the opposition and taking the fight to the unions. That, that, that's a crucial factor. And that failure to take that fight has resulted in frustration, anger, mistrust, I think, within the ranks of many within the independence movement, which has cast them against each other. So those three contributing factors here almost inevitably mean that things have gone off the boil. In 2014, we had Project Veer. All unions need to do right now is point to the squabbling uh, and, 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 you know, and, and that does the job for them. That erodes the whole position quite effectively. So it has gone off the boil. So what we now need to do is take at least those three areas and the other areas that, that Leslie alludes to and, and start to look at practical, real tactical efforts to step forward on this, you know, and it's one thing saying Mike Russell's been appointed to do this and that and whatever. There's lots of promises here. There's been lots of this stuff said before. But we really need to nail down what these practical steps are. And some of them may need to be quite radical, frankly. Yeah, we've. I think we're trying to get Mike to 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 do one of these, and and I think he's he's amenable to it in a couple of a couple of weeks' time, where we'll, we'll we'll ask readers again and 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 put these points to him. I think, um, but you've you've been quite a vocal critic on this, uh, David, over the last uh, over the past few weeks. And uh, well, I, I think I think that the article I wrote, you know, when I referred to the headline was something along the lines of Westminster lapdogs. I felt it had to be said. You know, I'm amazed that it hasn't been said more vociferously more forcefully already people have made these points you know and you know it takes the Don Butlers of the world to stand up in the Commons and call Johnson for what he is um, for us suddenly to realise how inadequate um, some of our elected representatives, SNP MPs down there actually are I'm not tarring them all with the same brush, clearly some are better than others clearly some are better equipped some of them are more vociferous, more passionate than others that's par for the course with any kind of party grouping um, in a chamber like that, you know. But I think they've had to sit up and take notice. And it's interesting that that has kind of caught the brush fire. The brush fire is a light now. People are aware of this and they're asking more of these elected representatives. Maybe we can talk about what we think they, they should be doing um, as the discussion goes on. But I think in the first instance, we need to recognise what those feelings are. Yeah, what do you, what do you think, Kevin? Brother, um, I think uh, I think it was inevitable. The longer uh, the pandemic went on, and let's face it, this time last year, nobody nobody even thought that we'd be talking about the pandemic or or talking about dealing with it beyond Christmas. Um, and at the beginning, I looked, you know, the, the the way that Nicola Sturgeon was approaching it, and her clarity, and her. Uh, qualities of leadership in delivering what were potentially life-saving messages um, was a massive difference. There was a massive difference between her approach and Boris Johnson, and it, it's, it's you can't you can't overstate how how much um, Nicola Sturgeon's daily coronavirus briefings meant, especially to people in peril, people who were shielding people who genuinely um, were fearful for both themselves and vulnerable members of their family. And when you have these, these life and death messages being delivered cogently, uh, eloquently and with clarity, um, it gives you confidence uh, because what else do you want to derive confidence on more than matters of life and death? And then when you saw the kind of shambling um, apology for coronavirus briefings by the chap down the road, then obviously that was going to that was going to translate into to good um, numbers for independence because Nicola Sturgeon is is the um is, is the face of independence, of course she is. But then you know as the pandemic goes on and the vaccine program is rolled out and we knew that that we knew that Tory government ministers would weaponise that, um, and you know there was the two messages that the the fact that British academics had beaten the rest of the world showed that we could go along alone um, beyond Brexit, and 
and that Britain was saving the rest of the world and Britain was leading the world. You know, this this kind of Britannia rules the waves uh, slogan, which which Tory ministers reach for whenever Britain is seen to have done something well. It was it was on the Olympic breakfast the other day as well, just because we won a couple of goals at the sailing. <laughs> um, and and so when that when that happens, and then you've got to also bring in, you know, you know the European Championships, seeing crowds and pubs and, and and football stadiums, and people just feel a little bit more comfortable and they get desensitized to the, the more extreme behavioural elements of, of Johnson's government. You know, like who remembers Matt Hancock? When was the last time we 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 had any reference to Matt Hancock? Every other week, it seems, the some Tory minister or their families or their friends is revealed as having had their noses in the trough of what we popular we felt was public sector procurement. You know, this this is this is you know it's cartelism, but it's happened so often, and also so weak as Keir Starmer down south, the people. Across the UK, become desensitised to to you know the the objectionableness of this, the obscenity of it, and and therefore you know the numbers kind of for Boris and for the union stabilised because this has become the new normal, and you you know you can you can have you you know it's possible to criticise the Scottish government and maybe not taking advantage of that, but to borrow a phrase that David used with the previous question, they're kind of damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. If they do start targeting that egregious behaviour, you know, they, they're then subject to criticism that they're not getting on with the day job. Um, when, when the numbers maybe, the coronavirus numbers maybe aren't as sunny north of the border as they once were, then you will have any number of commentators, and we know who they all are. Um, we've all worked with them saying, ah, oh, well, you know, Nicola thought she was uh, in control of this and she was um, propagating this, but she's not so loud about it now. Um, so, yeah. They're held to a different standard, though, aren't they? Because, because the question I kind of would ask is, you know, why is it, why is it, why do every Scottish government civil servant who's working on the case for independence during a pandemic have to immediately pause and not touch anything else and just uh, uh, until whenever it is that, that we're going to start back again? And yet, it's okay for the UK government to set up a, a union unit which probably existed in about four or five different forms yeah. uh, before it got kind of closed down and, and God knows what it is there. But there's some of that, but that they're held to different standards, aren't we? Well, I, I, I think I wrote about this um, not so long ago that, you know, those who were saying that um, that you can't, you know, you, how, how dare Nicola Sturgeon and her government talk about independence when there's a raging pandemic? And you're saying, really? Um, I mean, we're talking about, we're talking about um, a, a six-month campaign in a highly, um, you know, an educated population who are well informed about the issues. It doesn't take, you know, the country doesn't stop just to organise a referendum. Referendums happen all over the world. Elections happen all over the world. If people seriously think that Scotland um, is incapable of keeping its eye on the ball with the big issues of government, the day-to-day stuff, and organising a referendum... It's almost shows a level of contempt of what ordinary Scots and educated Scots are, are capable of. You know, really, what, what does it involve? You know, does the country come to a halt just because there's a referendum? I mean, we, we fought a Second World War for seven years against the most mortal enemy we've ever had in the country. You know, the country at home didn't cease to be. We basically just produced more aircraft, we produced more weapons, we we produced much more in the way of engineering and creativity, even though, you know, we were about to be invaded. Government didn't collapse. Health service still ran. Buses still ran. Roads were still being built. This, this is a kind of, like, a, a Tory trope. You know, we're too stupid to keep an eye on two things at the one time. Well, maybe they are. 
maybe they are, maybe that's their experience. But it's not been my experience. I mean, behave yourself. <laughs> right, I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I'm sure we can chew gum and walk at the same time. I mean, you know, as Kevin says, I mean, there's no question of that. And the other thing that bothers me about the pandemic is, you know, if the pandemic is the kind of barometer or the benchmark by which we we decide when a, a, an independent second independent referendum campaign should begin, once the pandemic is over, you know, when is that? When is that? decision made and what constitutes that decision you know i mean mm. you know is it over is over when it's over what, what does that mean i mean yeah, this, can be, this can be prolonged this can be prolonged forever <laughs> and it does allow both i think both unionists and frankly um slackers if i can use that expression within within our own ranks um to kind of use it as an excuse you know so we really need a kind of time scale thing mapped out there even allowing for the kind of constraints that the pandemic's imposing yeah, agreed. Um, we'll just go on to, to to what you spoke about a wee bit earlier, David, about practical steps uh, and what can be done at the moment. Because I, I agree that we should try and be uh, constructive, if possible, and and offer yes. some solutions as well as as, as well as some some criticism. Uh, I do want to say we've got quite a lot of people watching, so just put your uh, put your comments in. Please interact with us. Um, I also wanted, I don't know if you could hear this, but I wanted to apologise for my daughter crying in the background. Maybe you couldn't hear it. But, uh, she, she, she only started when people started talking about inaction on independence. So I don't know whether that was a coincidence or not. But um, <laughs> but, but, but let's go back to pr- practical steps, Leslie. Um, what, what can, uh, I suppose the, the two parts to it, like what should the leaders, the Scottish government, the SNP be doing, but then uh, a kind of secondary part is what can we do uh, who aren't them? Well, it uh, seems to me the, the the SNP have to request a Section 30 order. Um, they have to pro- progress the referendum bill when Parliament returns. Um, they then will end up in a situation where they're challenged in the courts, very likely. We can't tell how that will go. Um, then there has to be a response to how that does go. And when you get to that point, it's hard to know, actually, which of various things might happen. I mean, it's just possible that the Scottish Parliament will be found to have the powers that it can proceed and have a lawful referendum. Um, clearly, if the Scottish government's nervous about both, you know, even mentioning independence, actually, during a COVID uh, pandemic, they may well um, just just be very, very loath to try and keep pressing onwards if they feel that they're in a sort of area of illegality. And sometimes it strikes me being run, you know, having an administration run by lawyers is a, is a dangerous thing. I mean, both Keir Starmer and Nicola have strong points and weak points. And uh, one of them certainly is a tremendous nervousness about having official permission to do things. Um, quite obviously, um, Alex Salmon was a different kettle of fish completely, um, much more of a gambler, much more of a person to push forward and see what happens and sometimes make stuff up on the, on the hoof that actually caused problems for everybody afterwards, like the shared currency, which I think even the cabinet at the time didn't hear about until they saw it on television. So, you know, the swings and roundabouts with every leader, but there has to be momentum. There has to be movement through this because if you don't ask for a Section 30 order and potentially get knocked back, you don't change the character of the next set of elections. And this should change the character of them because then everyone in Scotland knows where they stand. Um, if we're knocked back, um, both by Boris Johnson and the courts, uh, then then we know that this is not hypothetical, but we've been told that this is Hotel California. You can never leave. There is no lawful way to leave the UK. And the next uh, election becomes a mandate then for independence. Now. Somebody needs to be pulling all that together and and outlining it, running it. Um, I really doubt that it will happen because there's not even the faintest um, suggestion. There's not the faintest allusion to that kind of outcome um, by any of the leadership team. So um, what can we do? Uh, the difficulty is is that people, well, yes, people are tired. There's a lack of leadership, at, uh, certainly at SNP level, which has both um, both prompted the formation of Alaba. 
um, and has led an awful lot of people to give up on the idea of the SNP's leadership. But to me, the problem with the thing is that because we are in a parliamentary democracy, and perhaps even unfortunately have a have a government of the hue that wants independence. That's the that's the direction of travel most people will expect to take on this road, a legal parliamentary route. So it's very hard to substitute the missing action from the SNP leadership by anything that a movement does because they're the ones with agency in this thing. Um, we can keep the pressure up. Of course, I I went to. Um, just to went to to a Dundee all under one banner rally at the weekend. Got blooming pelters for it for just being curious, because um, some people don't want to attend all under one banner because they disagree with the politics. They're going to be holding big rallies. There's a question mark, perhaps, in the minds of some people as to whether or not they should be going. And yet, I don't know how there's any other way of demonstrating that that Scots want this question, a substantial section of Scots want this question to be resolved. Okay. I mean, I mean, if, there, if there's one thing we're all agreed on here, um, Callum, is, is that there has been a, a slacking off of momentum. There has been a loss of momentum. That momentum needs to be regained here. You know, and again, Leslie was talking about the courts. That's one approach. There's nothing to stop us actually maintaining a multi-pronged approach to this, be it through the courts, be it through a more aggressive, a more assertive kind of role at Westminster. Um, I'm not one for you know pulling out of Westminster yet. I don't suggest that. I mean, I think it was George Kerrivan um, over the last couple of days in the National talking about the importance of having, I quite like the kind of military kind of um, metaphor really, of having a forward base down there. You know, but you know the point about having a forward base is it has to provide intel on the opposition, it has to harass the opposition, it has to make inroads in the opposition, and it has to feed back to the central base how best to kind of completely create a coordinated strategy. So th there are multiple levels there in which that momentum could be regained at the moment. And by doing that, I think that in itself has a knock-on effect within the Scottish electorate. It sees, it allows people to see that things are being done. It allows people to see that they, you know, People are putting their head above the parapet here rather than just sitting on their hands. And that in itself can have an impact in the polls. These things are all inextricably connected. So, you know, it, it needs this multi-pronged boldness really at the moment. Do you know, I always thought it was it was it was very, very strange that then I can't remember when it was, but a couple of years ago when when the SP walked out of Westminster and you know we're told that the SP signed up ten thousand members in the days after that. Now, I, I know that was, uh, I, I'm speaking selfishly here because we sold a lot of papers in the aftermath of that and we took a lot of new subscribers. So uh, for those reasons, obviously, I, I kind of like those things. But we were told at the time that that was just the start of a, you know, a, a, of a bit more of a sort of disruptive presence. And I'm, I don't want to, I don't want to be critical because I'm not, uh, but I just I find it a little odd that that hasn't, because that, that seemed to go, it, it really made a big noise. Um, I, I didn't see any kind of backlash or negativity around it, and yet it's it's been a bit of a an isolated incident, and I can't I can't quite work out why I get my head around it. I think it would be a great statement um, and a great PR move. It would be it would resound across the world if the SNP um, said we're not taking up our seats in Parliament. Now I don't know if there'll be a referendum before the next UK election. I have I have severe doubts because I'm I'm just not sure as as Leslie alluded to that that they're committed enough to. I don't think they've done detailed work on issues that the electorate would would expect work had been done on, like you know our future relations with England with the border, given what's happened in Northern Ireland, especially if we're if we're seeking to, to re-enter Europe, um, you know, where's where's the policy papers that um, Nicola and her cabinet, you know, had had promised us? Um, where's the work on the currency? You know, it's seven years since the last referendum. Um, but I I think I, I don't see I don't see any great signs of the SNP group at Westminster 
making such a difference that it that it justifies their continued presence down there. I I read David's column a couple of weeks back, and I, and I, I'm just going to find myself cheering because all I see largely, and I know there are, there are some good people, is is indolence and repeating the you know when when Ian Blackford and I mean I don't want to criticise him personally because you know I know I know the chap works hard. But it's the same sloganising when he gets to his feet. And when you've got Michael Gove, you know, treating him, you know, as his kind of drinking buddy next year, you know, next door, patting him on the head and saying, you know, we all like you and he's a nice chap, clearly doesn't take him seriously. But meanwhile, in this, at this point, <clears throat> the SNP leadership in Scotland, aided and abetted by certain actors, in the SNP group at Westminster have effectively sidelined and marginalised um, Joanna Cherry, who was the most eloquent advocate of Scottish values and Scottish policies and independence in, in the enemy's camp, so to speak. But more importantly, <clears throat> she had respect, she had the respect of, um, of, of people across all the parties. And you know when she when she spoke about issues, even even when the the UK government ministers didn't agree with her, they still respected what she had to say. But all that's happened is that certain people, through petty jealousy, I suspect, um, people who just didn't like certain things she was saying on on gender, and I'm not I'm not going to go into that whole debate. Decided that we will just alienate, we will just sideline and marginalise. Um, one of the best adverts for Scotland and Scottish independence in England. So I'm, I'm left thinking, what's the point? If, if we, if, if, the, if the SNP MPs walked out and said, we're not taking up our seats uh, because after all, we, we're not seeing any anybody taking Scottish independence seriously at Westminster. I mean, it would, it would resonate around the globe. And it would kickstart a debate about. But the thing is, the, the thing is, though, I think the difficulty is that somebody might quite rightly say, "Well, is the Scottish government taking independence seriously because it hasn't asked for a Section Thirty order yet?" Yeah, yeah you know, the, the moment, the moment for that, it's like a synchronized dance. <laughs> you know, what has to happen first is you have to try and get into the club, and then the bouncers have to knock you back, right? So you know, you stand, you're on the pavement, yeah. then you can take it from there. But at the moment, we're not precipitating the knockback um, by not trying to ask the Section 30. So any strategy that flows after that is kind of redundant. Um, actually, Joanna, who is a good friend of mine, um, we've talked about this many times, This um, the, the idea of abstentionism. And of course, she's another lawyer, though a fairly feisty kind of go-getting one. Um, and her feeling is that she would be happier if she'd stood on a platform when she was elected of abstentionism, which is what Sinn Féin did. They didn't sort of, in sense, opt out halfway through proceedings. I'd imagine you could make that argument, however, if something as cataclysmically important to your cause as having a Section 30 Section order 30. requested, which had been mandated in a Scottish election and then knocked back directly by Boris, that's a game changer. And yeah, I would think agreed. then you've got the moment where um, withdrawing from Westminster makes sense. But until um, a, a confrontation has been precipitated over the clash that really exists in the will of the two governments, uh, we are just sitting stirring the pot. I, I, I couldn't agree more, Leslie. I think we have to force that confrontation now. It has to take place. It's only then will we know precisely who's up for this, who's not, and indeed what steps we need to take next, whether it be legal steps or otherwise in the process. But if I can raise a related issue as well, I'm, I'm quite sick to the back teeth. I'm sure like my colleagues on the panel and many others, you know, who have friends, contacts, associates within the Scottish government, within the SNP and whatever, Getting a little bit fed up with the constant reassurances that I'm giving that the work is being done. I'm always being told that somewhere behind the scenes there are, you know, 
thinkers sitting down around the table who with some kind of blueprint being drafted, whether it be on currency, whether it be on relations with England or this or that or whatever. Now, I'm not for a moment suggesting that that's not the case and that they're lying, but I see precious little evidence of that. And I think it would go a long way, I think, to reassuring and reinvigorating, you know, yesers like ourselves, if we knew in fact that that stuff is taking place and that is real tangible evidence of it, not just a suggestion that it is going on somewhere. Let's see the evidence. Let's take these physical steps, like the Section 30 that that, that, um, that Wesley's talking about there. It's time to really push hard on this. You know? it, it, would these strategists, thinkers, might argue that Playing their hand and and letting us know. Oh as, yeah, as well, Calum, I've heard people. this. You don't, you don't, you don't telegraph the opposition your intentions. But mm. as any strategist will tell you, there are ways of actually getting that information out there, reassuring your voters, reassuring your electorate, without necessarily tipping off the opposition or giving them some kind of strategic advantage. You don't need to be, you know, Einstein to kind of work your way through that kind of stuff, you know. So that, for me, doesn't wash anymore. But there's there's even more to it, I think, than that, because you actually have to build a case for independence. You know, it's astonishing, absolutely astonishing, that 48% of the population are up for a proposition that has no strategy attached to it. Strategy. Mm. You know, so actually, that's really pretty impressive, a lot of other people, I think of myself quite strongly, over the period of Brexit and COVID, have essentially detached themselves from any belief in Westminster, um, especially uh, with Boris at the helm, but pretty much anyway, because uh, Westminster can reproduce that kind of almost tyrannical control at will. So people, I think, have, have realised the massive limitations of Westminster but they haven't attached yet to uh, Scottish independence. And why should they? Because there is no case being made for it. I mean, a lot of people will be waiting. Now they're kind of not at all sure about the UK. It's dodgy. It's perilous. It's not the kind of safe pair of hands option that it was purported to be last time around, demonstrably. But they have to hear a very concerted case put for the new case for independence, which has obviously got a lot of the chairs have moved. And they deserve that. You know, that's treating the electorate seriously. Now, you don't just roll that one out at the last minutes. This was, you know, the great mistake Tony Blair's administration, sorry to bring this in, you know, made was the idea that you could change things by stealth. You know, stealth taxes, stealth shifts in wealth, stealth redistribution. And when it came to the bit, the electorate had not been won over. You know, they did not necessarily agree that um, greater equality was better for everybody. So the second that there was someone moving into that political space, they lost control. You can't win independence by stealth. Uh, you have to keep building it. You have to keep making the obvious points all the time, you know, at the risk of sounding like a blooming broken record, there are very clear good points to be made about the environment, energy supply, oil prices, the green future, um, the kind of things that David is is the expert in, you know, our place in the world. All these points, um, our, our protection of refugees, our excellence in refugee integration, you could go on and on. These points always have to be made in relation to how hamstrung we are in developing the country we could become. I mean, I mean, it's not as if, you know, it's not as if the, the, the Tories or the unionists aren't handing us daily the building bricks with which to make this case. You know, I mean, it's an absolute, it's a, it's a gift that keeps giving. I mean, it just, it's like any other sort of political grouping would be embracing this. They, they, they would be embarrassed by what they're being offered in terms of the ammunition to hit back, you know, and would be tripping over themselves to use it. Why is that not happening? Why do we not see the evidence of that happening right now? Is it because it's not happening, you know, and we're being fibbed to? There's another factor that troubles me too. We Here we are kind of discrediting, you know, the role at Westminster. But, I mean, anyone will tell you I, there are curious relations between 
our SNP elected uh, representatives at Westminster and those at Holyrood as well. I'm not quite sure. I know something from a press perspective that quite often there's not an awful lot of joined up thinking going on between the two either, you know, which again suggests that there is no real kind of thought through blueprint there. That's really troubling. These are fundamentals that we should have long overcome by now. Okay, uh, I, well, I think that's the cheery it, bit. Now that's it. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it's difficult when everyone's on the same page to kind of have a bit of a <laughs> back and forth, isn't it? But you're doing very well. Um, I was talking about a little about that's what's happening with independence. We're now for independence. Um, that's almost the cause, and the the effect is is disharmony I think among what was uh, the movement and, and a reasonably united movement it was you know don't get me wrong I'm not I don't have roads anything classics on it was never completely united but it certainly fractured quite a bit and, we, and one of the one of the the, the the questions that we got from quite a lot of people I'll read one out in a, in a second is, is just what do we do to what do we do to fix that Alison Hall says what is your recipe for uniting the impetuous holy willies at one end of the independent spectrum with broad church SNP supporters in the middle and timid swithers at the other end uh, I'm guessing Alison's in the middle um, but anyway <laughs> What 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 is the the answer to that? Because the, that's, a, the, that's a good question. Yeah, on you go, Kim. Um, because if if next month's SNP national conference had been live and and we were all present, I I would you know I would have been approaching it with a degree of trepidation, and I know an awful lot of other people would have been. I mean, one once upon a time. You rocked up to an SNP conference, and it, you know it was it was it was chummy. There was uh, there was a kind of family atmosphere. Um, there, there was even a kind of latterly after twenty fourteen, there was almost like a kind of festival like atmosphere. People knew each other. Literally, families were interlinked. Um, and although the, that happened to a certain extent in some of the other national party conferences, it was much more present at the SNP conference. But if we if we were rocking up to, you know, the the concert hall at Glasgow or Inverness or Aberdeen next month, uh, there would there would be there would be a an atmosphere of ugliness, because judging by what I've seen in social media between the two main factions. It's not. It's not just disagreement over, for instance, um, the gender issue and hate crime legislation. I mean, we're seeing we're seeing outright hostility occur between people who just a few years ago were linking arms with each other in um, protests and handing out leaflets with each other and standing in platforms with each other. Um, so a healing. A healing has to take place because the consequence of this is that if and when we do get the next referendum, the strength of the nationalist movement is one of the main strengths. The key strengths is in how many volunteers the movement can persuade to get out on the streets and put in the hours, uh, morning, literally morning, noon and night, 24-7, but if what I'm seeing on social media and if the character of some of the some of the defamations and the the, the abuse that's coming back and forward is is true, is characteristic, then I'm seeing an awful lot of people who were prepared to put in those hours and, and do the footfall don't want to because they feel they feel a certain amount of hostility. Um, they wonder who they're going to be sharing platforms with. And, and if that's not there at the next referendum, we're going to struggle. And I think it's going to be, um, it's going to be, a, it's going to make demands on Nicola Sturgeon's leadership at how she does this. It doesn't help. And I don't make any apologies, uh, any apologies for mentioning Joanna Cherry again. It doesn't help when she and others that she has often alluded to uh, feel that they are being attacked um, by members, some of whom are known to the leadership, and yet the complaints that they have made over a year and a half, two years, don't appear to have been investigated. 
And this reached its apotheosis when when Joanna was Joanna Cherry um uh was you know had threats of sexual violence made against her leading to the conviction of um of her attacker last week. This has to be sorted out as a matter of priority. And it's clear leadership and a clear statement of intent that people can safely go about their business on behalf of that party. I mean, I think, I think that the thing too, I think in terms of this healing process is that across the movement, people have to realise that no one person is bigger than the cause here, you know. That, that there is a need to kind of park a degree of narcissism. There's a, there's a real need for people to kind of stand tall, frankly. Um, I'm, I'm trying to be positive about this now. You know, they've had some real terrible ruptures within the movement of late, you know. It requires people across the board to kind of step back, say, like, calm down here. Let's let's just, let's get our heads together here. Who's benefiting from all this division or whatever? But no one person is bigger than the actual cause of independence. We need to get that message out there. But also, the healing process will come about, I believe, it will be, helped it will be speeded up if people also see that there are tangible practical moves forward that Wesley was talking about earlier on it's a combination of mood mindset as well as seeing physical concrete examples there all of that I think would help it would help provide some kind of balm for the for the, for the wounds that clearly are visible at the moment and help us move back onto a positive footing. But can, can can some of these wounds have been healed? I mean, it, it, it's been incredibly acrimonious in, in, in the election campaign, obviously. Well, okay. Just, well, well, why don't you well, imagine putting that question to some of our friends and colleagues within the movement? If you put it to them that, you know, if they don't heal, they won't get independence. What would they choose? In which case, do they deserve independence? That's the bottom line here. They have to be bigger than that. You, you can't let these things fester in that way. That's a question I think we all have to ask ourselves, particularly those people who have been really, um, you know, dishing out a lot of the toxins of late. Yeah, speaking speaking as a, as editor of the paper here and, and trying to navigate a course through that election campaign, which was one of the di- most difficult ones for us to cover because they're clearly, from the number of letters that we were getting and the number of uh, responses on social media across all our channels, there's clearly a large proportion of our readership that was pro-Alwa, was going to vote for them. Uh, and that proportion wasn't reflected in the wider population. But we found it really, really difficult. And we, uh, even now, I'm, I'm still fielding complaints about being too pro SNP at the expense of everything else and too pro um, Alba. And uh, it, it's a really, really kind of difficult balance to strike as a paper, I think, because we're, we're a paper of the movement. We're a paper of independent supporters. We're not a paper of the SNP. We're not a paper of the Greens or any kind of party. But those people have to have a, a platform and a voice there. Uh, and it, it was just so difficult. And I found myself just fielding responses, writing uh, emails to readers about, no, listen, did you not see those four stories that we did the other day? <laughs> was that, you know? But people only see the one story that they, that they don't like and they don't see the five that they do. Um, I, I don't know, Leslie, you, you've got your ears to the ground, don't you? What's your, what's your take on this? I mean, I, I absolutely agree. I actually felt physically sick during most of that, that election campaign. It was like watching your family, just as Kevin said, just turning on each other and, and kind of just pulling arms and legs off each other. Um, and it's, it is very difficult. But I mean, you know, when you think about the things that people are able to do in life, you know, People are able to sit in Northern Ireland uh, with folk who come from traditions um, that have been responsible uh, for killing their families. You know, people are sitting down in war-torn areas where they're having to deal with the Taliban. You know, I mean, if we just can get a sense of proportion about this here, um, we I, what I not very much annoys me in life, but one thing that absolutely infuriates me is is the demand to take sides. Now, this might be the journalist in me, but it's also, the, I think, the, the rational person, because sometimes people are doing well and they might be right in aspects of what they do. Other times, they just aren't. And I am never going to be set up to get so thrilled to one person 
one personality, one take, one party that you can't call a spade a spade when aspects of that are not working out. Now, you know, which part of the independence movement, which political party, which leader of the many, if you like, has got enough uh, completely clean sheets behind them to be able to cast the first stone at anybody else here? I think absolutely agree with the lads that, you know, I was trying to think which fish it is, and I have a horrible feeling it's a shark that drowns when there isn't forward movement. I don't want to build a parallel between us and a shark, but, you know, when we don't have forward movement, we do start to drown. And this is what's happening at the moment because people are just expending all their energy in trying to be right. And I think a lot of that is for the reason that there's feelings of grief that we have not even properly talked about since 2014. People felt so strongly, sometimes for the first time in their lives, about um, a political aspiration, a thing that could be achievable, all the I-been and stuckness of Scotland being swept aside, perhaps, perhaps. And it was perhaps, but there was such a strong emotional attachment to that, and it went just like that. And it is just human behaviour that people seek someone to blame. And the longer there isn't a remedy, that goes on too. But the awkward truth might be there is not one person to blame for us not yet having got NDREF too. So I... You you touched on this a few minutes ago when you were talking about people criticising you because you attended an All Under One banner. Um, uh, organ, um, Rally in Dundee. Rally. Yeah. And, and the, the people that I've seen who go on these, these were the people who were driving the campaign in 2014. These were the people who'd become radicalised in politics. These were the people that caused an awful lot of the joy and the momentum of the movement. But what I see is that, as, as you experienced, people are reviled by certain sections of the movement if they're seen to attend that, because simply by attending it, they're then associated with other ideas when these people are saying, no, we just quite like flying a salt tire and having a nice day out with the family, you know. Well, look, to be honest, you know, that they every speaker at that Dundee rally was having a go at the SNP, um, was talking about Craig Murray, was talking, you know, there was one speaker had from Alba had a list of criticisms of the SNP. There was a brilliant woman from Perth who was talking about refugees. Um, there was a whole, there was a guy from Yes to Kirkcaldy who was actually a really moving speaker and actually broke down on the microphone talking about how bewildered he feels at the moment. And the thing that's keeping him going is his grandchildren. You know, for if it's not for anything else to focus on, it's the grandchildren. So I took a lot away from that. I I got, I agreed with some points. I realized there was strength of opinion in others. I disagreed with others. For God's sake, <laughs> this is called just being a sentient being in Scotland. There's 48 to 50 to 55% of this population in support of independence. That's a big phone box. Mm. There's going to be a lot of different people's views in there. So we just have to be able to take on board that they're allowed to express them. And we need leadership from the SNP to be pushing forward so that there feels like there's momentum and we don't stand like the ranks always do in everything before there's a battle taking lumps out of each other. I mean, I, I'm yeah. always really, I'm always really encouraged by the fact, you know, given my area of expertise, as Leslie put it, you know, that, that, that Scots kind of grasp the notion of internationalism. You know, that, that they're they reach out, they reach out across the world. They're well received across the world. The problem just seems to be here at home, actually, when when they get a bit between their teeth. So, you know, if some of that similar kind of solidarity. That idea of, of standing shoulder to shoulder can be beginning to manifest itself here again, you know, then then I think you know we can we can move forward. You know, we, we need to think big again. We need to be ambitious. If we're talking about getting this momentum, you know, we need to think solidarity, not division. You know, we need to think strategy. You know, these are all the main planks. If we're going to be positive towards the end of this discussion, these are the things that we have, the buttons that we have to pick up and start running with again. You know, we they've been dropped or they've been mishandled. 
I think of late, and the polls have reflected that, and it's allowed a kind of lethargy to kind of set in. But there's nothing to stop us getting up on our feet and moving with us swiftly. And, you know, time is of the essence here, given what the Tories are doing. There's no question about that. I'm certainly looking to, to the conference, SNP conference and hoping that what comes out of that will be some serious positive kind of signs of, of, of getting on our feet again, you know? Okay, great. Well, look, we're, we're, we've run a wee bit over time or where we said we'd stop anyway. I think this is just a, a topic in which we could probably talk all night about. Um, it's it's really fascinating. Um, and, and I think hopefully everybody at home listening, watching, uh, has enjoyed it. And, and we'll come back for, for the next ones. I'm sure we'll have all of our guests back again. Um, and I did, I, I did want to answer just with, uh, thank you all for coming first of all, and just ask one, one kind of final quick question. So it's kind of putting the cart before the horse a little bit, given some of the stuff that we've been saying, but the, again, we asked our readers for questions. We asked our readers for, uh, to, to what they wanted to ask you guys. And the one question that everybody said was just, when do you think the next referendum will be? So I don't, I don't really want to, I, I just want to kind of predict a little bit. I, I don't want you to, I, Less than I was going to say one word, but one word's probably not not enough to answer the question. Uh, but very very briefly, what, what, what do you guys think, Kevin? First of all, when you, when do you see it happen? Um, unless unless I see any detail at the national conference, unless I see any proof that work has been done in the areas that David and Leslie had highlighted this evening, I can't see it happening before twenty twenty four. David. I'm constantly being asked, are you an early referendum fan? My answer to that is, no, I'm a fan of winning a referendum. You know, I know that that might seem like a, you know an evasive answer, but in terms of chronological kind of timescales, I would agree with Kevin on that. If, if we don't see that, that movement happening through the next conference, it's hard to envisage it before 2024, yeah. Leslie? Right. I'm just a naked optimist. Well, closed optimist. <laughs> but I'm saying late 2022 because it has to be. Hurrah. Hurrah. Good on you. Well, Les <laughs> Leslie's got better connections in the party than I do. So. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no, the point is, if everybody yeah, maybe, is perming, if everyone is perming in, that they, they sound off the ball and inert, what does it do? It frames it up and I'm it encourages them, that. right? So I'm saying, you know, logically, Boris could go early. So that could be a 2023 True. general election. So you're not going to get that year. He's quite capable of doing that. He probably will, given his slide in the polls. 2022 could be the only year that you get a good shot at it. So we have to act like we expect rational, bold and courageous decision making by the SNP or they will slough, slough onto the despondent outlook of just, you know, Neverland. So come on, 2022, the end of, we've got to think it's possible. Well, hopefully this okay. discussion inspired people up again, you know, and maybe one or two of our elected representatives have listened to it and get things moving. I certainly hope so. Yeah, we'll need to we'll need to clip it up and and, and send some clips to all our uh, favourite MPs and, and MSPs. Uh, no, look, th thanks very much to to all three of you for joining us. I, I really really enjoyed that discussion. I thought it was great, and I go, you know, I'm feeling a bit uplifted after that. I, I was feeling a bit, a bit kind of at the same same lethargy. I'm, I'm feeling good now. I'm gonna go out and chat some doors. Um, but th thank you very much. The the subscribe uh, using the code there that's been running along the bottom. Please do that to to support us. Um, you can probably read about this discussion in the paper and uh, over the next kind of few days as well uh, and stay tuned for the next one because we'll try and do these uh, if not monthly at least every kind of six weeks or so they've been really valuable and we'll try and get some some big name guests and uh, let uh, some of our journalists grill them for half an hour and maybe we'll get some of the answers that we're, that we're looking for but any of the three of you can volunteer as well to, to, to play that role if you want <laughs> you're talking about big name guests yeah, I'll, 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 do we fit that category uh, <laughs> all, all I, all other, I need to do is, uh, all I need to do before that is dust off my helmet and Kevlar and we'll be absolutely fine <laughs> yeah yeah to, to, to be honest uh, I, we might not get them on if we see you guys are, are doing it but, um, but okay we'll wrap it up there thanks very much everybody see you all okay. soon thank you Good night Thank you.